0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Jim Shuto. Jim is an Emmy Award winning journalist, senior national security correspondent for CNN, and the author of the new book, The Madman Theory Trump Takes On the World.
1: We're going to ask you to take a moment now to evaluate the statements and decisions in just a single day of the sitting president of the United States.
0: Why do you keep using this? Because it comes of from China.
2: It's not racist at all, no, not at all. I was really being tough, and so was he. And we would go back and forth, and then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. Now, Trump is cozying up Duterte, and that's kind of messed up, because Duterte has declared a war on drugs. And in the past year, Philippine national police officers and unidentified vigilantes have killed over 7,000 people.
1: And today, Britain's prime minister, branded as ridiculous, suggestions by the White House that British spies wiretapped Mr. Trump last year at the request of President Obama. Hi, everyone, I'm Jim Shudo. I'm fighting for facts over alternative facts. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Jim, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Will you do me a favor and just explain to my listeners what the madman theory is and where it originated?
1: Thank you, first of all, for having me. I've I've really been looking forward to this. Okay, so madman theory originated with Nixon. He famously or infamously during his administration deliberately communicated or had it communicated to U.S. adversaries that he was just mad enough to do crazy stuff, that he thought would gain advantage. Example, and I talk about this at the start of the book, during the height of the Vietnam War, he had Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor at the time, communicate to the North Vietnamese that the boss, Nixon, was just crazy enough to nuke North Vietnam.
2: Listen, I don't want a president uh, who's warm on the outside and warm on the inside too.
1: There are White House conversations recorded. We have transcripts of this where they're discussing the language they would use and when he would communicate that. And Kissinger dutifully communicated that to North Vietnamese. The intention was that it would scare them into a weaker negotiating position as they were trying to negotiate the end of the war. As it turned out, the North Vietnamese, they certainly did not weaken their position. We know how that war turned out. But Oddly enough, Nixon and his friends own the madman theory as a strategy. They write about it. I mean, H.R. Haldeman writes about it in his memoirs as a positive thing and a valuable tool in world affairs. That's the origin of it. Now, Trump himself has never referenced Nixon in his use of this kind of tactic. And he has innovated in many ways, if you want to call it innovation, but has followed a kind of similar thing, which is to shock and awe, right, your adversary at times, but also even your allies. That's one of the things about Trump is that he's just as likely to scare or attempt to scare, say China or North Korea, you know, fire and fury, as he is Canada, you know, I mean, Canada, the steel tariffs or NATO allies, heck, we'll pull out if you don't pay more money. So that's the origin. And then Trump, of course, like with so many things, he puts his own sometimes alarming spin on it.
0: Right. Well, it feels a lot like Trump's approach to the world was just childish, right? To our adversaries or to Trump's adversaries, he was a lot like a bully, implying he was uncontrollable and prone to dangerous outbursts. Nobody would stop. And to our allies, he was just like this petulant child threatening to take his toys and go home like he did in South Korea. So is this a valid strategy or was it just that, a child in charge?
1: Well, by and large, it hasn't worked. So it certainly hasn't been a broadly successful strategy. In fact, you could run through, and I do it in the book, a lot of ways that it failed. One element to that is like the schoolyard bully, right? He's a paper tiger. It's false strength. And one of the ironies of this is that Trump and his acolytes and defenders imagine that he has scared the world into respecting the U.S. again. The fact is, if you look at the decisions of the Iranians or the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans, frankly, that's just not true. They've tested Trump and in many respects, they become more, not less dangerous. I mean, North Korea has more, not fewer nuclear weapons today than it did four years ago. It's got more advanced missiles, more likely to be able to hit the U.S. today than it had four years ago. You know, he is, he's sort of like the childish schoolyard bully, but the one who behind his back, right? Folks are saying that guy's got nothing.
0: So in your book, You talk about Trump's National Security Advisors going into briefings and realizing Trump had not prepared at all and was not able to really receive complicated information. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Or information he didn't want to hear. You know, again, there's a childish aspect to that. But the main thing to begin, he didn't read, right? He just didn't read. And early on in his term, this became very clear to his security briefers, his National Security Advisors.
2: He is the first, in my experience, that had no
1: foundation or framework to understand what is, what the limits of intelligence are, what the purpose of it was, and the way that we discuss it. So
2: um, I do a lot of sports analogies. It's like playing pickup basketball with one runner.
1: At the time, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster came out of the military. As he realized this, he came up with a strategy. He said, let's boil down the briefing notes, which aren't that long. We're not talking about like 100 pages. We're talking about three or four pages. But since the president wasn't reading those, McMaster and his team, they boiled it down to note cards with three bullet points, hoping that the president would get through those. And again, we're not talking about like sports headlines, right? We're talking about bullet points on the biggest national security threats to this country, Iran and Russia and China. So they tried that and then they realized that he wasn't even reading all three of those. Typically, he would just get through the first two bullet points.
0: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: So they started concentrating as much as they could in the first two and kind of made the third bullet point a throwaway point. And then after a while, the guy just wasn't reading. And they knew this because when they came to him with this stuff, they could tell. It's sort of like when your kids don't do their homework, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. You can tell if someone's just bullshitting you.
1: It's the first time they've heard it. And so there's that part, which is... He just doesn't do his homework, doesn't really have interest in in it and imagines he knows better. And that's the other piece here, right? When they would come to him with information he didn't want to hear, for instance, in the sorest point for him is any intel about Russian threats. He would blow up at them. It was like, Russia again. He would deny what they were telling him about Russian threats to the US to the point where his briefers started briefing him less on it because they knew it was useless and would kind of ruin the relationship, which is an alarming thing, right? Because for you and me, We're like, the president needs to know this stuff. And the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy was that over time, because they were briefing him less, he thought Russia was becoming less of a threat. I mean, it's incredible to say it, but that's what his own advisors are saying. It's not me saying it.
0: I can't even tell you, Jim, the amount of preparation that I go through just for an interview. If I am speaking to CNN on the Equal Rights Amendment or on immigration, I mean, I have files and files of research that I do that I keep on file in case I need to bring it out. And I'm an actress. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing to me that he was coddled for so long and just it was acceptable that he just wasn't doing the job. So I think my question is, what does having a leader like Trump mean for American exceptionalism?
1: So on that point, this is another one that's new, right, with a president of either party and disturbing, frankly, if you have a certain positive view of America in general terms. But Trump's view of the world, and again, this is from people who worked with him, in the room with him every day for four years, is that America is really no different from anybody else right? That everybody's a dirty player in a dirty game. We're just as bad as the Russians and the Chinese. They're just as bad as us. And therefore, we could break the rules just as much as they do because everybody does, right? For the book, I spoke with his top Russia advisor a number of times, Fiona Hill, who you'll remember testified in the hearing. is you know, such a straight talker. And she's like, this is one reason Trump and Putin, or at least Trump liked Putin so much, is they saw the world in the same kind of way. Do you remember early on in the administration, Bill O'Reilly of Fox, actually, you know, he interviewed Trump and O'Reilly pressed him and said, you know, Putin is a killer. And Trump said, well, aren't we all, you know, in effect?
2: Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? Well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna get along with him. He's a leader of his country. I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight, and Islamic terrorism all over the world, right? major fight, that's a good thing. Will I get along with them? I have no idea. He's a possible, killer, though. Long. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We get a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent?
1: And again, with these bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan and Russia selling arms to the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers, right? No small thing. The president said, well, we did the same thing in the 80s, right? Now, to be clear, you and I know America's far from perfect. We've done a lot of bad stuff, but we also know that we're not Russia and China. And yet the president has this kind of just nihilistic view of the world. And that's been in his decisions, you know, not only coddling up to the Kims of the world and the Putins, but also treating our allies nastily, right? And that feeling, wherever it comes from for Trump, has real effects on America's relationships around the world.
0: I keep thinking about everything that you're saying in the context of the election and how he has handled this in not only refusing to concede, but just his tweets. And it makes a picture that is so much more, I think it's got such more precision because we have seen now over the last four years how nothing is surprising anymore and I don't know what is going to happen in the next however many days we have until Joe Biden is sworn in. What do you think is going to happen?
1: A couple of things like we're seeing. One, like we were talking about, the president does want to hear intelligence about stuff he just doesn't want to hear about. Right. So here you have it. He doesn't want to hear that he lost. He doesn't want to accept it. He wants to lie about it, frankly, and he is. And he has folks around him that are willing to indulge that. And not just folks in the White House, but the senior leaders of the Republican Party it's remarkable the enabling taking place here, the denial of reality, and it has real consequences, right? So even if we get through all the kind of legal challenges and other political machinations going on, which I tend to think we will as a country, the president is already poisoning the well with a big portion of the country, to believe, and you've seen it in the polling, right, you know, that something like two-thirds of Republicans don't believe this was a free and fair election. So in their minds, he will have succeeded.
0: Yeah, just completely poisoning the system.
1: Murderism, right? Remember, because the president has a history of this. There are still people who don't believe Barack Obama was a citizen of this country, right? This stuff is insidious and it lasts, and that's part of Trump's intention, poison the well. And he doesn't care.
0: Why do you think the Republican Party isn't standing up to him? Like, what do they have to gain at this point? He is a losing president with a losing message who has botched a pandemic. How do any of these Republicans feel like aligning themselves to what is happening or what has happened in the last four years is a good move?
1: You know, I'm with you. I I keep asking that questions of the folks on our show coming on. In a close election, you could anticipate in some of these states you're going to end up in court. It's the American way. (laughs) When Jimmy Carter lost after one term, Democrats didn't live in fear of him. When George H.W. Bush lost after one term, the party was like, what do we got to do to like win again and change things? In this case, here's a losing president, right? And by the way, the margin, once the popular vote is counted, is going to be the biggest margin in years. So why they fear his base. By the way, there are indications based on, for instance, if you look at the House race results and the Senate results so far, that his policies, right, and frankly, the man for many Americans, they still like him or are willing to live with him. And they live in fear of that. And they also live in fear of becoming a target of Trump. He loves to go after dissenters very publicly.
0: I mean, there are no excuses for the way in which they have coddled this man and allowed for this to go on. And are still allowing it to go on, even with a new president-elect who is an incredibly liked man by both parties. So it just seems like a losing recipe. And really, we all lose, right, because they're poisoning the protocol. So you mentioned President Obama, and you were chief of staff to Gary Locke when he was President Obama's ambassador to China. So how does Trump's approach to international relations and I guess especially to China differ from Obama's?
1: So this is a part of the book where I give credit to the Trump administration approach. And I entered this with an open mind. For one, I only spoke to folks who worked in the Trump administration. Two, I spoke to many who left and have become critics of him, but also people who were still in and still believe in Trumpism, America first, et cetera, to get a sense of where this comes from, where the differences, et cetera. So on China, as an example, just personally, I've spent like years covering China, working there, et cetera. Standing up to Chinese misbehavior is a good thing. There's lots of things that this country, under both Republicans and Democrats, have kind of turned a blind eye to, right? I mean, theft of intellectual property, you know, cheating on trade deals, et cetera. That's true. So when I did, I did a couple of years, as you say, chief of staff to the U.S. ambassador. This was like a career change for me because I'd spent like years as a journalist, but I got this offer and I was like, this will be neat. I'll learn a lot. But I'll say while I was in there, and this is, of course, was during the Obama administration, I had some frustration that I found times where U.S. diplomats were not willing to stand up to China as aggressively as I think we should, as Americans. So to see that turn around, I think, is a good thing. Now, the trouble is, Trump has set the two countries on such a path towards conflict. The president has been angry about China's trade practices since before he took office. The protests this week in Hong Kong over Beijing's decision to extend security powers there has added to that anger. Hong Kong has had a special relationship with the U.S. But the president wants to punish China and says Hong Kong's special status is no more. Steve Bannon, in this book, who I interviewed for the book, you know, before he was indicted for fraud, he talks about a shooting war with China in five years. I'm like, you really want a shooting war with China in five years? I mean, it's one thing to stand up. It's another thing to create a sort of slippery slope to war. And that's something I don't think any smart people want.
0: And how do we fix that? Or what do you think is going to change when Joe Biden takes the oath of office? So
1: I think this is one area where it won't be like a 180, right? Because I think it's now a bipartisan thing to stand up to a lot of this stuff. On the flip side, Biden is an adult. He'll have a real national security process, not one that rises and falls on the whims of Donald Trump, which is basically the way he's sort of governed here. So there will be some calibration, communication, et cetera, where you hope that they find ways to talk, right? But listen, he's not a magician, right? So I don't know that he's going to get it right. But I think you can expect standing up to China, but looking for ways that you avoid a path towards war. I mean, there's already been some reporting that Biden's going to look at some of the trade war stuff, like the tariffs, et cetera. I don't imagine he's going to get rid of all of it, but does he find a way that there can be some exchange, right? It's possible. And again, it's not automatic that he gets it right, but I do think it's likely to be a more measured approach to China.
0: I want to go back and talk a little bit more about Trump's relationship with Putin. I remember Trump in Helsinki siding with Putin against the entire American national security apparatus.
1: President Trump asked, who do you believe, President Putin or the U.S. intelligence community? His answer?
2: People came to me, Dan Coats came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be.
0: How was that such a powerful bond between these two men?
2: So I asked everybody I interviewed for this book,
1: and I've been covering that story for a while. It's something that I'm, you know, deep into and, you know, subject of interest, no question of mine. And I'll tell you, frankly, there are people who worked very closely with the president who suspect, they don't know, but they suspect there's something personal. There's a business relationship, that there's something along those lines, debt, et cetera. They don't know it, but they suspect it. And the reason they'll give is they'll say I, there's no other explanation, right? Because he is so deferential over time, with no connection to U.S. national security interests. So they say, well, that's where my mind goes. And again, these are people who work for the guy, pointed by the guy. Now, in the book, deliberately, because these people could not prove that, I wanted to stay away from innuendo. And I said, okay, well, what do we know? And short of the kind of compromise idea, compromising information that Russia would have over him, their best explanation, and these can both be true, right, is that. Trump likes Putin, admires him, and envies his power. And like I was saying before, shares with Putin this kind of nihilistic, zero-sum view of the world. Kind of a mob boss view of the world. You know, it's business. You and I can do business together. Now, the irony of that, right, is that Putin takes advantage of him, right? I mean, that Trump imagines himself as an equal player in this game and he's getting his ass kicked, right? Nothing has moved in a positive direction with Russia during that time. So what was gained from all of this kind of romance? That's the thing. There's this constant overestimation of himself in all this, which is like a psychological principle. <laughs> you know, you and I are professionals, but you can kind of see it play out.
0: I feel like he does seem to gravitate towards these really brash, bullying, authoritarian types, right? You have Putin, you have Kim, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in Manila. While he has a real, real distaste, it seems, for more thoughtful leaders like Macron in France and especially, of course, women who lead nations like Merkel in Germany, What does that say about him?
1: It's interesting. So one, he imagines himself to be a tough guy like they are. When in reality, when it plays out, he's not really, but he imagines himself to be. The other one, this is really interesting to me. And again, Fiona Hill talks to me about this and others. The weird thing about Trump is he has more hostility towards allies than adversaries. Why is that? Because in his worldview... The Allies are freeloading off of us, so they owe us something. Merkel owes us something because we have the troops in Germany. Canada owes us something because, I don't know, just because, just because they're Canada. South Korea owes us something, even though they're the ones on the other side of the border with North Korea. I have this mind-bending conversation in the book with Peter Navarro, Trump's trade advisor, but one of Trump's confidants, because he's taken on a whole host of responsibilities beyond trade, like hydroxychloroquine, right? <laughs> you know, among other things. You know, He was touting that. But I asked him about Canada. I was like, listen, I get why you're being tough on China, but why are you using the same kind of tools and cudgels against Canada and ally. And instead of saying, well, we're looking for advantage in the negotiation, he says, what's so great about Canada? And I said, well, they're our peaceful neighbor and ally. And he's like, are they really? And I was like, well, they fought on the beaches of Normandy with us right up to Afghanistan. And listen, I have personal experience with this. I've been embedded in Afghanistan like a couple dozen times. The Canadians are always on the front lines and they lost a lot of soldiers because of that. That's a post 9-11, we stand with you America thing. And he's like, well, did they do that for us or for themselves? And I was like, well, how about they did it because we're allies in this, you know, fight against terrorism, et cetera. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't buy that. By the way, when that section of the book came out, it made news in Canada to the point where like Canadian officials were calling their American counterparts in Washington and saying, excuse me. And U.S. officials had to call Canadian officials to apologize for it. But that's fine. But this is the way Trump sees the world. It's really damaged those relationships. It's crazy.
0: You mentioned the word allies, and it just makes me think of Trump abandoning our Kurdish allies in the middle of a brutal war.
1: The president doubling down all day on his decision to suddenly pull U.S. troops out of a key part of Syria a week and a half ago, standing by that decision, despite what's happened since to U.S. allies, the Kurds, who helped the U.S. fight and then secure those ISIS prisoners. The president saying today the Kurds are, quote, no angel saying their fight has nothing to do with us.
0: How damaging was that to our international alliances?
1: That one was just gutting. You know, I talk in the book with a guy who was one of Madison's deputies in the Pentagon and his reaction. And the reaction to the Pentagon is the U.S. by tweet, right? Because Trump did this by tweet, was abandoning these guys on the battlefield. It is enormously damaging, first of all, to that relationship, because the Kurds, you just you have to Read the history of how often they've been on our side, right? During the Iraq invasion, I was embedded with U.S. Special Forces in the north. And that was a small number of U.S. Special Forces and a bunch of Kurds. That was the whole American plan in the north of Iraq. And they fought and bled and died, as they've done many times, as they were doing in Syria. So one, those guys are like, America, what the hell? But then other allies in the region are like, wait, can we trust you to hang with us? Trump, by the way, is like pulling out of Afghanistan or trying to, leaving the Afghans to the Taliban. So you have that. And then on the other side, the Russians have been telling people for years in the Middle East, don't trust the Americans. They will leave you at the drop of a hat. And it gives them ammunition. And then by the way, when we pull back in Syria, who fills that space? The Russians and the Iranians.
0: So is there a world in which our allies look back at this time and realize that it was Trump being who he is. And I guess the question is, do you think our relationships with our allies can be easily rebuilt? I mean, can we ever be trusted again as a world leader in the way we were in the 20th century?
1: So I think to some degree, the worry is if Trumpism is here to stay, and we're seeing some of that in the party now, right? I mean, the guy's lost the election and yet they're still rallying around it. Maybe that changes after January 20th. I don't know, but there's clearly a lot of fear within the party of him. So does 2024 create another Trumpist kind of candidate, either Trump himself or Don Jr. or Josh Hawley, you know, folks like that. And then our allies have to be saying, okay, this is good for now, but If you're back in the climate accord, January 2021, where are you January 2025? If NATO is safe again for the next four years, is it safe for like the four years after that? This is like the difference, right, is that a lot of these things used to be bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats agreed Russia's a bad guy, right? We're going to stand up to them. NATO's a good thing. We stand by our allies in the field.
0: It's a great point.
1: Is it? Can we really have confidence kind of alarming thought.
0: Well, it's a great point. And I don't think there's much that we can do in the next 4 years to set forth policy that they're not going to challenge all the way up to the Supreme Court like what we're seeing with the ACA. If they do regain control, and that's why you got to kind of hope this reimagining of the Republican Party that groups like the Lincoln Project are trying to do will be successful. The way you, you got to look at it is not only do we have to fix everything that he has broken, but we also have to advance our own agenda. Right. So how do we get to this point where policy is in place? Where we're going to have to just completely rebuild the Republican Party for it to work for the American people, because we can't keep going back and forth like this.
1: No, it's daunting. It's daunting.
0: It is. And it's scary. And it's scary, especially for the marginalized, right, for immigrants who are coming over for a better life, the systemic racism. Everybody has a certain amount of hope right now. And that feels really good to have hope. So to squash that hope in four years from now and just go back to this really, really hurtful part of the Republican Party would be devastating, I think, not only for the country, but for people personally. In the end, do you think that his chaos and unpredictability and all of it that was around Trump, do you think that that was a strategy was it real? Was this designed to keep foreign powers on their toes? Or was it what his emissaries and national security team built around Trump because he's just incapable of behaving in a predictable, normal matter? What do you think is it all about?
1: I think it's random and reactive. And I'm very skeptical of the three-dimensional chess kind of idea of this, that Trump changes his mind on the fly. I mean, if you look at You know, the withdrawal from Syria, it contradicted his own administration's policy there. And he didn't think it through. He was talking to the Turkish leader, Erdogan, and they had a conversation and he's like, I'm done with this place. There was no prep to it. It was how he felt in the moment. And then after he does that, then a few days later, the Pentagon pushes to leave some troops on the ground. And he's like, Oh, OK, fine with that. And then 10 months later, he does it again. And then they push to have after and he's fine with that, too.
2: Turkey wouldn't have done this three days ago. The Kurds would not have done it three days ago. This is a situation where everybody is happy.
1: It's not like he's got a sort of whiteboard, you know, I don't think planning. Right. I mean, there are some bigger picture guiding. I don't know if you want to call them principles, but ways of doing business here. One, like I was saying before, he kind of thinks we're all dirty players in a dirty game, right? There's no sort of American mission in the world beyond just power plays. So that's kind of a consistent thing. There's also very much a self-interest in all these decisions, right? What is my political game? Pulling the troops out of Afghanistan? Sure, screws the Afghans, right? But, oh, wait, is this going to give me a good talking point in the election campaign? Fine. You know, his own advisors say that. So you have some kind of consistent pieces of it, but it's not like it's drawn from some sort of grand philosophy. It's like a Queens real estate way of dealing with the world, right? You can take the boy out of Queens, but you can't, you can't take the Queens out of the boy. Right.
0: What do you think is the common denominator, though, of all of his moves? Is it a desire for power? Is it more hotels? Is it like, what is it that drives him?
1: Self-interest, power and self-interest, right? That's the one consistent thread through all these decisions. Now. Are there times when his self-interest, he believes, is connected to the national interest? Absolutely. He thinks that renegotiating trade deals helps the country, right? That his view, we've been taken advantage of, right? But when you speak to his own advisors, what wins out in this, you know, when push comes to shove, is what serves him and his power best. And by the way, we're seeing that play out with this election right now. The institution of the U.S. election be damned. I don't care. I got to look for the best way, you know. If burn
0: I, it all down.
1: Burn it all down, man. If I can't like sort of overturn the election, at least I'm going to question it so that when I start Trump TV or whatever comes next, I could say it was stolen from me. You know that folks, right? It's pretty remarkable.
0: Are you, and I guess this is two questions and it'll be my last questions. Are you hopeful that things can get better?
1: I am hopeful. I'm a little bit of a incurable optimist about a lot of things. So
0: then what gives you that hope?
1: So I think if we look, institutions did not collapse under him, right? There was damage done, but just some examples for hope, because of course, we could easily cite some bad ones, but think of things, you know, in the midst of the George Floyd protests, he wanted to deploy active military and the military said no, right? Prior to this election, he wanted, and by the way, not just him, the Republican party made real efforts to suppress the vote in a number of ways. And they lost virtually all those cases. And by and large, more people voted than ever before in the history of the country, right? And, you know, so that goes to both the courts and State up, but it also goes to you and me and the people listening to this. We'll see what the election, do the institutions stand. But we've had some, as a country, right, we've had some wins. And that gives me hope. But listen, I have genuine worry. You know, Do I wake up at four o'clock in the morning here and there? Absolutely, I do, because it's not a partisan thing. I worry about, like you, I mean, I worry about, I love my country. And I worry about the people in this country who need help doing stuff. And I worry about just the things we all rely on, you know, freedom of expression, you know, a clean government that's not working in its own interests. And there are genuine challenges to that. And I just hope our better angels, right? I mean, Biden had that in his speech the other night of better angels, you know, quoting Lincoln. And I just hope that our better angels
2: prevail. Me too. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely there will be by the better angel of our nature.
0: We're having this discussion as if the pandemic Didn't really exist, but you put that on top of it. And it is a country in despair. But you're right. The thing that we should find hope in is that we did turn out in record numbers when they were trying to suppress our vote. We elected not only Joe Biden, who I think will always represent a certain amount of hope because of being the vice president to Barack Obama, but also we elected a Black woman, a Black South Asian woman. So there are so many things to be hopeful for.
1: I was with ABC News for a long time, and I spent like 10 years in London as a foreign correspondent, like after 9-11. So the bulk of that time was the George W. Bush years. And you remember, George W. Bush was not loved overseas, right? It was not a Trump degree, but he was not. And I remember in the lead up to the 2008 election, a lot of my European friends, French friends and British friends, they would say to me, there is no way your country will elect a black man. No way! Your country's too racist. And listen, there were Americans who thought about that too. Concerns, and lo and behold, twice. You know, and I remember there was this kind of self reckoning afterwards. There, like in France and the UK, because they look at their own parliaments, for instance, which are very homogenous. Right? There's not a lot of multiculturalism diversity in there. And said, "Huh? Why aren't we doing that?" You know. So I feel like America, and I've spent a lot of time overseas. You know, we often surprise on the downside, but we have the capability of surprising on the upside as well. So maybe we'll still do that. I hope so.
0: (laughs) We do have an incredible capacity to self-correct, and that's beautiful. But I'd like for the American people and families across the country for their safety, health, and livelihoods and happiness to be dependent on the whim of a political figure or a non-political figure that is elected into office. I'd like for the American people to have some sense of stability and to not have to struggle for everything. And we got to go to a better place coming out of Trump than we were going in because we are now fully aware of our weaknesses as a country. That's what gives me hope is that I'm hopeful that we'll come out of it better than we went into it. And also my kids give me hope.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way. I think of the way they're ahead of us on so many things. Like my middle son is like, Big on the environment. He's like, why are we driving this car right now? We're killing the environment, (laughs) right? He's like, if I were president, I would ban gasoline. You know, I think that they're thinking in ways and in solutions that, like you, I have hope in.
0: Yeah. My kid the other day, we were walking up the stairs and Milo and I have this thing where I'll say, I love you. And he'll say, I love you more. And I'll say, it's impossible. I grew you in my belly. Like, there's no way you could love me more. And then he'll say something like, Well, I do. I love you more. And I said, without even thinking about it, and it was a back and forth, I said, well, I love you more than life. And he stopped dead in his tracks, and he rightfully said to me, Mom, that's not right. That's not good. That's not healthy. He's nine. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't have said that, and I shouldn't put that kind of pressure on you. But there is a sense that they're so much further advanced. Well, they've had to be. They're living through a pandemic, for fuck's sake. We don't know what kind of implications this is going to have on our children. Any of this and the stress that parents have been under during this administration and the struggle, the financial struggle that most Americans are living through in this divide in wealth. It's a hard life right now living in this country for most Americans, and it would be that way without the pandemic. But then you put the pandemic on top of that and how there has been absolutely no plan whatsoever. But, you know, with everything that you're saying and what you talk about in the book, that's the way he rolls. So it shouldn't be that surprising. Thank you, Jim, for all that you do, for writing this really interesting perspective, but also for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can keep it up. Look,
2: we're done with the chaos. We're done with the racism. We're done with the tweets, the anger, the hate the failure, the irresponsibility. But we got a lot of work to do, folks.
0: We've learned something important from Trump, or at least been reminded of it. America is the most important piece in the puzzle for world security and prosperity. And when there is chaos at the top of our political structure, there is chaos in the world. And world chaos is dangerous. The next four years with Joe Biden as president have to be a period of rebuilding international relationships, strengthening the global order and reassuring our allies that Trumpism was an aberration and that the chaotic, incompetent approach to global affairs will never again exist here. And then we have to follow through on our promises. The world is a dangerous place. So many threats are out there but so are so many opportunities opportunities for friendship for peace for increasing human rights building prosperity for all people saving the environment and so much more but in order to unlock those opportunities we need stability we need thoughtful leadership and we need allies president biden will start that critical rebuilding work for us but it's on all of us to finish it and never elect a chaos agent like Trump again. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.